You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. We are glad to have you back with us today for Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. We are in a series right now called Restoration, and we are now to the fourth lesson, fourth episode in this series where we've been talking about the process of restoring New Testament Christianity and really what churches looked like in America right after the Revolutionary War and how they developed over time. And we have talked about three different big players in the restoration movement and today we're going to talk about the fourth big name and my dad Danny Hawk is back with me today to continue this conversation. Dad we are glad to have you back with us. I am very happy to be here. I like talking about this and you're making me famous. Everywhere I go people say they've heard this. Well to all four people who listen to it, thank you. Oh, for lots of folks evidently listen. Okay, well, um, today we're going to talk a little bit about Thomas Campbell. Uh, who was Thomas Campbell, and why was he so unique? Thomas Campbell was a, he was a preacher. He lived during the 1800s. Uh, he was actually lived through the last part of the 1700s and the 1800s. He was a very unusual man for a good many reasons. One of them was his education. He was pretty well educated, actually ran a school at one time in, in Ireland before he came over to the United States. Uh, that made him unusual for the day. Uh his age probably set him apart as much as anything else. He lived to be 91 years old. Not many people, Jacob, live that old in the 1700s, 1800s, but he did and was in relatively good health uh, all of his life. And I think another thing that sets Thomas Campbell aside from a lot of people was his attitude, his personality, uh, his character. He to some degree, in my estimation, to some degree was a a John the Baptist in that uh, Thomas Campbell really set the scene, set the table for what was going to take place among the Campbells in America by himself early on, did a good job with it. But then it's the same way John the Baptist in New Testament times said he was one that came ahead of one that would be coming that was going to be greater and have greater things to say and more to do. When his son Alexander Campbell arrived in the United States and Alexander Campbell became more involved, Thomas Campbell had the ability to to play second fiddle and just move back to a, 
lesser position as far as uh, the public could see, but it really wasn't a lesser position. He he was he was very very influential in the fundamentals of what the Campbells were teaching. So he was an interesting man. He was born in 1763, uh, and came to America, and like I say, lived 91 years old. Okay, which, as you said, is unusual for that time period to have that long of a life and did many things during his life. But he did not start out as a non-denominational preacher. He was part of something called uh, the Seceder Presbyterian Church. The Seceder Presbyterian Church. He was part of that over in Ireland prior to coming to the United States. Came to the to America in 1807. But he was Scotch, Irish, had been raised in the in Ireland, but he was a part of the Church of England. But he became very unhappy with the Church of England, with its formalism, along with some other preachers that were over there at the time, and uh, there was a group that seceded, just like seceding from the United States Civil War days, seceded uh, from the, the Church of England, and uh, they began calling themselves the Seceder Presbyterians. That's kind of where the Presbyterian uh, church began over there. So the Seceder Presbyterians didn't believe in a different set of doctrines and theology than the Presbyterian church has historically. They were just kind of the first group to break away from the Church of England. Church of England, okay. Go ahead. No, no. Well, he soon got in trouble with the Presbyterians. Why don't you here in America? He was forty-five years old when he mm-hmm. came to America. Mm-hmm. Now, an interesting thing that we need to talk about because it's going to be very important later on with with Alexander Campbell. He left his family. Thomas did left his family uh, in Ireland when he came to America. He said, "I'm going to go, uh, you know, go on early, get set up, and then the family was to come later and join him." in the United States. So he came by himself. He arrived in Philadelphia, May the 13th, 1807. And when he got there, the the synod of the Seceder Presbyterian Church, which was part of their ecclesiastical setup and their hierarchy, their administration, they were having their annual meeting in Philadelphia at the time he was there. He found out they were there Thomas Campbell did. He presented uh, the Senate with his credentials, and he was assigned to the Charters Presbytery in southwest Pennsylvania to serve as a Presbyterian preacher. And he did that. He settled in Washington, Pennsylvania, small town, and he soon became a very respected Presbyterian minister in Washington, Pennsylvania. However, within six months of arriving in America, and you alluded to this, he got in big trouble with the Presbyterian Church. Why? What were the charges they brought against him? Well, one of them, he said that he believed that there, at least they accused him of believing that there was no divine authority for confessions of faith, which is going to be accurate, but this is early on in his, uh, we've talked about this each time, and I want to point it out again. These men, these pioneers, didn't just move from A to Z in one step from in their faith. It was a faith-building experience. It took a lot of study. It took a lot of uh, experience and events. 
And so uh, he'll later speak strongly about this. But they accused him of that early on. I also said uh, that they he had some misgivings about nature of faith, how they saw faith and how he saw faith. Uh, I think when that comes down, it's going to be whether or not uh, as James will say, faith without works is dead. And he, he saw that uh, the faith needed to be an active faith, uh, Thomas did. He believed that anyone could preach and had the uh, right to stand up before a crowd and preach. Presbyterians, they had a problem with laymen and ordained clergymen and the uh, stress between the two. Uh, and also... He had an open mind, and he felt like it was okay to hear from ministers of, of other groups, other denominations from the Presbyterians. Well, the Charter's Presbytery suspended him. Because of these things, they suspended him from uh, the ministry, told him he couldn't preach anymore in Washington, Pennsylvania, and in that area. Thomas Campbell appealed his case to the highest authority among the Presbyterians, the Senate again, the group that was meeting in Philadelphia when he first arrived. Well, he appealed to them, and they set a trial for him, and his appeal took about a year. But in May of 1808, the Senate spent a week considering the charges that were against him, again over in Philadelphia for their annual meeting. Well, the Senate's verdict, when they heard the uh, charges against Ta Campbell and, and interviewed him, they said that the, he had departed, this is a quote, said he had departed from some of the doctrines and practices of the Presbyterian denomination. He was guilty of that. What was the sentence? What was the punishment? They said, a quote, he was to be rebuked and admonished, which was surprisingly a very mild punishment under the circumstances. After the public rebuke in Philadelphia, they asked him to preach, <laughs> and he preached there for two months, which is very interesting. So if this was a mild punishment, what would a normal punishment have been? stripped him of any credentials and said that he was never allowed to uh, preach again, taking his ordination away from him. Okay, so it wasn't not that severe, obviously, but he's still getting blacklisted a little bit. He is. They found him guilty, but then they asked him, won't you preach for a couple of months while you're here in Philadelphia? So they wanted to hear him preach. Okay. He goes back home to Washington, Pennsylvania. When he gets there, even though the Senate, which was the folks with more authority, the most authority in the Presbyterian uh, structure, uh, the presbytery, they made it clear to him that he was no longer welcome there. Maybe the Senate just rebuked him and admonished him, but they didn't want any part of him. And so on September the 13th, 1806, he, in his own words, he declined the authority of the presbytery, thereby withdrawing from the Presbyterian church. That was the date that, in his mind, he was no longer a Presbyterian. And he did that himself. That he was did not that forced himself upon him. Because they, they just didn't accept him when he got back. And he said, well, I'm just going to okay. step aside. Okay. But he didn't quit preaching. He did not quit preaching. And surprisingly, he didn't go organize a new church. Instead, he just continued to preach to his friends, to the church members, and anyone who would listen to him. 
And in his preaching, he stressed the themes that had become very important to him. He talked about the sinfulness of sectarian divisions. He talked about the need for a wider circle of Christian fellowship. He talked about the importance of following the Scripture rather than creeds or confessions of faith. So you hear the restoration plea uh, really, really getting strong in, in uh, Campbell's preaching. That's what he's saying. So he doesn't quit, and obviously he loves the discipline and art of preaching. He's passionate about it. He's had a falling away from what you could label as his quote-unquote people. Uh, but after a while, we're going to talk about this now, he still forms another type of organization, I guess, for lack of a better term. He and, does. In about a year after he had uh, withdrawn himself from the Presbyterians, he and his friends had been listening to him preach all through this year. They decided, let, let's form an organization, they said. Let's, let's get us some kind of, a, uh, of something that will help us give more, what the, and this is a quote, to, to give more definiteness to our movement. And so they did that. August the 17th, 1809, they organized what they called the Christian Association of Washington. Now, the Christian Association of Washington was never intended to be a church. didn't even function as a church. It met only twice per year, which I guess to some people today would be a church, <laughs> Christmas and Easter maybe. Uh -huh. But no, it was never intended to be a local congregation, but it was just uh, a, a group they put together to say, uh, we exist. Well, what was its purpose? Here's their start statement of purpose. Again, a quote. Says the Christian, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the Christian Association of Washington voluntarily advocates for church reformation formed for the sole purpose of promoting single evangel evangelical Christianity. So church reformation, which later on Alexander Campbell is going to say, no, we don't, we're not in reformation, we're in restoration. And he'll make a distinction between the two words. But they say we're formed for the sole purpose of promoting simple evangelical Christianity. So that's Thomas Campbell's first part of his life here in the United States is he got in trouble with the Presbyterians and he has set aside himself to this Christian Association of Washington. Well, this association, they asked him to prepare a formal statement explaining the purposes of the Christian Association. Now, I'll make a distinction here. It was not a creed. It was not a confession of faith. It was a document to explain what their purpose was and just explain what they believed. It was not to impose it on any other preacher or anything like that, but just here's who we are. So he wrote what is what he called and what we know today as the Declaration and Address. Jacob, most historian scholars consider the Declaration and Address the most significant historical document in the history of the Restoration Movement in America. Why, why do they feel that way? 
There's no other statement by any early restoration leader that is as thorough or detailed in its treatment of the restoration principle. The declaration and address, you know, bottom line, it was a call back to the Bible. It wanted to abolish denominationalism, abolish creeds, and as Thomas Campbell put in there, such nonsense. And that's a quote. That's a quote. That's a quote. Here's some of the things that are in the Declaration and Address. Speak where the Bible speaks, remain silent where it's silent. Lots of people today, I'm convinced, believe that's in the Bible, that mm-hmm. that's passage of Scripture. It's not. It comes from the Declaration and Address. That's what Thomas Campbell said. We, that needs to be our posture. Another quote, one church, one body for all. Another quote, do not add to or take away from. Called Christians only. Preach the word, no man-made doctrines. The pattern, and here's one of the early times that the word pattern is used. The pattern for the church is the New Testament, not the Old Testament. And the church is not a denomination. There's other things in there. It's kind of a lengthy document. It's, it's interesting to read, and it's uh, available to be read and not too hard to understand. He was pretty clear in his writing. Uh, there were two basic themes to the Declaration and Address. If you had to just put it all in two umbrellas, number one was the unity of all believers. Thomas Campbell really, really, really was uh, passionate about unity. He thought that uh, there one church, one faith, uh, one gospel, and he felt like everybody ought to get along. Jesus prayed for that, and he believed that should be our goal. And he's someone that experienced a church basically turning their back on him. Exactly. He also, though, in the Declaration Address, realized that just the unity of believers won't get it. If people are going to – we've talked about this in the earlier uh, sessions we've had here, but if you're going to all get along and all agree, you got to have some standard that you agree uh, to agree to. You got to have some rules. You got to have something that does not move, does not shift. And so Thomas Campbell said, number one, we want to be all unified, but number two, we will achieve that unity only in one way, and that's by restoring the pattern of the New Testament Christianity. In other words, go back to the Bible. Go back to the Bible. And he was very sincere in that. Thomas Campbell believed that if all the denominations of his day would just accept the New Testament as the divine constitution for the church, if they would voluntarily abandon any practice not expressly authorized in the New Testament, he believed denominational lines would disappear, Christian unity would be achieved. And that was his dream, and that's what he uh, wanted to see happen. His two most famous statements where we speak where the Bible speaks, we remain silent where the Bible is silent, and the church of Christ upon earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. He had a lot of quotes, but those are the two he's he's remembered the most most for. And in that quote, the church of Christ upon earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. For those listening, correct me if I'm wrong, but – the terminology for churches of Christ as a religious group does not yet exist. It does not. He uses that term directly from from Scripture. Scripture. He believes there's one church. 
and the church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. And his his dream, his goal, his aspiration is it for everybody to be one. An unfulfilled dream. An unfulfilled dream, and, and he has a lot of grief through his life because of, the, uh, of not seeing that dream, uh, you know, become a reality. But as you said, he's he's the father of a dynamic father son duo, and his son's name is. Uh, Alexander Campbell, and I've heard you say many times that without dispute, we've talked about several different movements uh, throughout the Restoration history, but you've often said that Alexander Campbell is the most influential person in the Restoration movement. I don't think anybody would doubt that. So why is he kind of the poster child for the Restoration movement? He becomes the most focal figure. He's a very talented man. He we'll talk about it more as we get into it. But he he's a he's a very eloquent preacher. He is a good writer, and he starts publishing uh, some publications. The editor of them, and uh, in that day and age, there wasn't a whole lot for people to read, and so that made him very very uh, famous. He was a debater. He did a lot of debating, famous debates. He was a good businessman. He made a lot of money, and he knew a lot of people and a lot of the folks across the country in that day that had power and money, and they knew Alexander Campbell. And so he had a lot of influence, not just in the Restoration Movement, a lot of influence in uh, in America in his day. Even though he had a very limited formal education very limited he in fact his uh, education on in the beginning was taught by his father thomas campbell thomas campbell operated an elementary school and a high school back in ireland and it was a small school but that's where alexander got his uh, initial education um I told you a while ago, Thomas Campbell came to America ahead of his family to get Mm -hmm. uh, everything ready. There was actually 30 months, a period of 30 months, where the family was separated from uh, Thomas. Uh, The rest of the family was coming later. They they were supposed to come uh, a year later, and they started. They started uh, to America one year after Thomas Campbell had, had left Ireland. But they hit bad weather and actually was shipwrecked, kind of like the Apostle Paul. He was shipwrecked with his mother and siblings on an island off the coast of Scotland. It was a very traumatic event. It was a very bad storm. And on the night of the shipwreck, Alexander Campbell will later reflect and, and, and share with folks that he was 20 years old at the time. And on that boat when he thought it was going to capsize, he made a promise to the Lord, made a promise to God that if he was spared, his life was spared, that he would devote the rest of his life to the ministry. Well, following the shipwreck, it was too late in the year because of weather, the season. It wasn't the time to start to America again. So the Campbell family, his mother, Alexander, and his siblings, they lived in Glasgow, for 10 months. This time afforded Alexander Campbell the opportunity to attend the University of Glasgow. And he was only there for one term, but it allowed him to broaden his education. 
One of the most important things that it did for the Restoration is it brought him into contact with a religious movement in Scotland that was taking place. This movement uh, had the plea of let's return to primitive Christianity. It's a Restoration uh, thinking group. Two brothers were leaders of this movement, Robert and James Alexander Haldane. We call them the Haldane brothers. The Haldane brothers were very wealthy. They were members of the Church of Scotland. They had started a movement in the 1790s for, uh, as they said, an evangelical revival and a greater missionary zeal. That's what they wanted to see in the Church of Scotland. They didn't get a very good response, and this really discouraged them. So they withdrew themselves from the Church of Scotland, and they began establishing independent churches across uh, the land there at that time. In these churches, they began practicing congregational independence. They had the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, and very soon they were calling, and this is a quote now, they were calling for a restoration of New Testament practices. Several churches were established in Scotland, England, and Ireland, and even some in America that we can trace back. Uh, some churches of Christ were begun that their roots go back to the Haldane movement. Well, Alexander Campbell, in his association with the Haldanes there in Glasgow, it really got him to thinking. It turned his mind towards restoration. It, it made him uh, question his loyalty to the Seceder Presbyterian Church that he was a member of. Also, as Father Thomas had been a preacher of the Seceder Presbyterians, as we said, when he left uh, left them in Ireland. Towards the end of his Glasgow residence, Alexander Campbell refused one night to participate in a communion service of the Seceder Presbyterians. He says later on in some of his writings that from that point on, from that night, he never would consider himself a member of the Presbyterian Church. That's when he's in Glasgow. Here's what he says. Here's a, here's a quote. He says, My faith in creeds and confessions of human device was considerably shaken while in Scotland, and I commenced my career in this country under the conviction that nothing Listen to this now. Nothing that was not as old as the New Testament should be made an article of faith or a term of communion against Christians. Hmm. <clears throat> well, he gets on to America with his family. And when he lands in the United States at September the 29th, 1809, he's a young man without a church. But he had a mission. He had promised God to, he would give his life to preaching. And his mission was, he said, I'm going to preach simple New Testament Christianity. Well, all sounds well, but it's not too well with him at that moment because he's got a big problem. He's really been worrying about it. And that's what am I going to tell Dad? You can imagine. What am I going to tell Dad? You said he's a young man. Do you know how old he is when he arrives in America in 1809? I think he's 20 years old, isn't he? I'll have to go back here and look, Jacob, but I think he was a... Uh, it doesn't really matter, but I'm just curious matter, how but young. I think he is a young man there at that time. Okay. We may need to go back and look at that here in a minute, but he... Uh, let me let me go back we can, to that. We can I'm, keep I'm, going. We can okay. get that later. 
But he's worried about what am I going to tell Dad? You know, I've I've withdrawn from the church that he's a preacher of, and he's really really nervous about that, as you can imagine. He had broken ties with the Presbyterian Church. Well, the plot thickens to some degree because let's go back to what we were saying a while ago about Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell had also broken his ties with the Seceder Presbyterian Church, and he had not chosen to share this with his family. He thought they had enough stress and strain of making the journey by themselves without him, and he thought, I'll just wait till they arrive in the new world, and I'll tell them then. So what you've got, Jacob, is both father and son dreaded sharing the news with each other about their decisions. They'd been separated, and here we go back. We've talked about this several times, but of all these movements that we see, they began in a period of about 20, 25 years, and none of the people, O'Kelly, Stone, the Campbells, then none of them realized that the other even existed, leave alone having the same ideas. Well, even among the Campbells, they were separated by an ocean in 30 months of time, but yet they had both begun the same search for primitive Christianity without the knowledge of the other's actions. It's pretty interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, legend has it that when Thomas Campbell met his family, they met somewhere in central Pennsylvania, and he shared with them uh, the declaration and address that he has written. Legend has it he had the galley proof of them in his saddlebags. Alexander Campbell supposedly sat down on a tree stump somewhere out in Pennsylvania and read them, read the address, and he was excited. He told his father, I will dedicate my life to preaching this principle, talking about the declaration and address. He also made another promise to his father, he said, "When well, I'm going to preach, and I'm not going to ever accept any money for my preaching. Hmm. I'll never charge for it. To which Thomas Campbell, who was a uh, preacher by trade, he told him, this is a quote, he said, you'll wear many a ragged coat. Hmm. Now, just throw in something here of interest, he didn't wear many a ragged coat because Alexander Campbell later married Margaret Brown, who was the only daughter of a very wealthy landowner in West Virginia. For their wedding present, his father-in-law, John Brown, deeded him a 350-acre farm and a house. It was a, actually a, a considered a mansion in its day, a three-story mansion. Still, we can go up. I've been through it two or three times. It's in Bethany, West Virginia. And uh, it contained what some think was some of the very first glass for windows that ever came to America. It's you quite the parsonage. Quite the parsonage. This became the first of his many land holdings. He later bought all the land around him. He raised sheep, was a big, big sheep raiser. He became an editor, and his publications made him a lot of money. He was a very good businessman. He came to America. I'm talking about Alexander now. Alexander Campbell came a penniless immigrant. He spent his entire life preaching for no pay, but he died one of the wealthiest and most influential men in the United States during his time. Well, he preached his first sermon on July the 15th, 1810. He had no license, no authority from any church, just he said authority from God, Jesus Christ, New Testament. And he continued to preach, and within one year he had delivered more than 100 sermons. 
Both Thomas and Alexander Campbell saw the need to have a church, so they decided to turn, remember the Christian Association of Washington that they set up that never was intended to be a church. They decided to just turn it into a church. Thus, the Brush Run Church was organized on May 4, 1811, nearly three years after Thomas Campbell's break with the Presbyterians, and this would be their first church and their anchor church for a long time. The principle which underlay the foundation of the Brush Run Church, uh, this is what they, they would stress. Number one, the autonomy of each local community of Christians. Number two, their right to organize themselves as a church without appealing to any ecclesiastical structure for authority and without subscribing to any creed other than the Bible. Number four, the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. And then number five, immersion, baptism by immersion. Their mission was to return to the simple, original form of Christianity, and they would reject everything for which they could not produce, a thus saith the Lord. That's the Brush Run Church. We want a thus saith the Lord for everything. In other words, a book, chapter, and verse. Book, chapter, and verse. The task of applying the restoration concept to the problems of everyday church life was became the major work of Alexander Campbell. Thomas Campbell laid the groundwork and provided the ideal, but it was the younger Campbell who undertook the task of measuring all contemporary practices by the New Testament. Beginning in 1825, Alexander Campbell wrote a series of 30 articles and he published these in his first journal, and he called it A Restoration of the Ancient Order of Things. Campbell began the series, Alexander Campbell, by dist- any time I say Campbell, Jacob, from this point on, I'm talking about Alexander. Okay. If it's Thomas, I'll make that distinction. But Campbell uh, began by distinguishing, as I had said earlier, the difference between Reformation and Restoration. He acknowledged that many Reformations had been attempted and that the reformers have been great leaders, but he said, whereas human systems can be reformed, Campbell denied that it was proper to speak of reforming Christianity. He said it was perfect when it began, and any attempt to reform it would be as futile as an attempt to create a new sun. Sunshine, he's talking about. What was needed, Campbell insisted, was a restoration of the ancient order of things. He said this will be achieved by bringing the church up to the standard of the New Testament. When Campbell applied the restoration principle to the question, how does one become a citizen in Christ's kingdom, he concluded it was by faith and immersion, that these were essential requirements. Now, immersion, immersion, the the Presbyterians had sprinkled, infant sprinkling. So very soon, Campbell sensed that infant sprinkling was not as he said, expressly enjoined in the New Testament. Well, when Alexander Campbell's first son was born, the question had to be dealt with because he had to decide whether to sprinkle the baby. Thomas Campbell asked him, son, are you going to sprinkle my grandson? Well, Alexander Campbell said, I don't know. I'm uncomfortable with it. And he said, I'm not going to do anything until I can study this a little bit more. Alexander Campbell sat up all night long studying and reading the New Testament about baptism. 
The next morning, when when Thomas Campbell showed up and asked him, are you going to sprinkle the infant, his answer was no. The infant would not be sprinkled, would not be baptized. And he said, not only that, I am going to be immersed. Campbell was going to be immersed. Alexander Campbell. Not the baby. And this is a big distinction and a big critical moment in the Restoration period. And it came about, as I said, I'm going to go back again. You don't move from A to Z in one step. But because of the birth of his first son and trying to make a decision about whether to sprinkle the baby, he did an all-night study of baptism in the New Testament. And he said, absolutely, we're not going to sprinkle the baby. But as important as that, I've got to go be immersed. I have not ever been immersed for the forgiveness of my sins. So on June the 12th, 1812, Alexander Campbell and seven others, including Thomas Campbell, were immersed by a man down the road. He's actually a Baptist preacher down the road from Brush Run Church by the name of Matthias Luce. When Matthias Luce was going to baptize him, Campbell made it very clear he would not submit to any usual examination as to whether he was a candidate for baptism but he insisted that baptism should follow a simple confession of faith and that should be the only requirement before someone's baptized is their faith and it's noteworthy that i think right here probably at this point is where the role of leadership in the movement really shifted from thomas campbell to alexander campbell because of the decision to be immersed and henceforth, Thomas Campbell pretty much follows his son and seems to be okay with that. Let me touch on something you just mentioned for a point of clarity for people listening. Alexander C- Campbell comes to the conclusion that the only thing needed for baptism is a confession of faith. And you mentioned he's not going to subscribe to any uh, thing that would make him a candidate for baptism. What is this idea of becoming a candidate for baptism? What are you referring to there? Matthias Luce and the Baptist Association uh, that he was a part of, they would have a a pretty much questionnaire, we'd call it today, but they would put you through uh, answering of of some doctrinal issues and doctrinal questions and and being in subjection to the association. And uh, it had some uh, Calvinistic ideas in it. You know, that was one of the things that we're going to see that creates tension between Campbell and the Baptist Church is their uh, Calvinistic thinking. Okay. Let's go on with with after Campbell's baptism. After Campbell began practicing the Campbells, Thomas and Alexander, through their Brush Run Church, after they began practicing immersion, the first goal of the decoration and address, you remember two goals. The first one is unity of all believers. That began to fade at that point because many, many of the churches did not accept immersion. And the Campbells concluded that immersion was an essential uh, uh, step to becoming a Christian, and it was essential in a restored church. And because many refused to accept it, the goals of unity and restoration, complementary in theory, proved to be antagonistic in practice at times. And thus the restoration movement has faced an unhappy dilemma in in some things, and we can talk about that more 
as, as we move along. But I want to go back to uh, Alexander Campbell and the things that he was best known for for a little bit. Once he is immersed with uh, Matthias Luce down the road, Matthias Luce and the Redstone Baptist Association, which he was a part of, which the the uh, Brush Run Church fell into geographically, uh, they got excited. They said, we've got a new Baptist church because they're immersion, immersing folks. Well, they invited the Campbells and the Brush Run Church to become a part of the Redstone Baptist Association. And they did. They did for a bit, but uh, Campbell made the point. Thomas or Alexander Campbell did. He said, we will do it only as we see it uh, as consistent with the New Testament. We will not uh, spend any time with you or, or being a part of this if we see it inconsistent with Scripture. Well, they were a part of the Brush Run uh, the Brush Run Church, I'm sorry, Jacob, was a part of the Redstone Association for 17 years. During the last seven years of that is when Campbell started publishing uh, his first periodical, and he called it the Christian Baptist. Uh, this is 15 years now after Thomas Campbell had written the Declaration and Address, and they're finally getting a broader audience to talk to. The Christian Baptist, that publication, uh, most historians look at it, and the term that you'll hear more than anything is it was iconoclastic. That Alexander Campbell was very iconoclastic in it. What does that mean? That means a tearing down of idols. And he was chunking rocks at some of the idols that he saw in the Redstone Association. Uh, there were some differences, even between Thomas and Alexander. Alexander Campbell made baptism a, a must. Thomas Campbell uh, was not ready to say it was essential, but Alexander Campbell said that it was. The biggest difference between Alexander and Thomas, though, and I wanted to refer to this earlier, but we're going to talk about it now. Alexander Campbell, in his preaching, and I think it's one of the reasons he became the man that everybody was listening to the most, where Thomas Campbell talked about big pictures and big umbrellas and big themes of unity and restoration, Alexander Campbell got down to specifics. And the specifics and the details is where everybody wanted to, what things wanted, people needed to hear, wanted to hear, and Alexander Campbell was using a fine, uh, small paintbrush where Thomas Campbell had used a big paintbrush in, in what they were saying. Three things that Alexander Campbell was very critical, very iconoclastic of uh, in his publication of the Christian Baptist was number one, creeds, number two, clergy, number three, unscriptural organizations. Uh, again, he was part of the Redstone Baptist Association for 17 years. Finally, it came down to the point uh, they said something to Campbell about he was sounding like he was, uh, was upset with the Presbyterians again, and Campbell told them, it's plainly said, what y'all don't understand is I've got about as many problems with the Baptists as I did the Presbyterians when it comes to uh, the, the restoration plea. So 
they were going to kick him out. Redstone Association was going to kick him out. And Campbell knew they were going to. They had a big meeting for him to, uh, where they're going to withdraw from him. Uh, Campbell was present at it. Campbell had two churches at this time, Redstone Church. I'm sorry, the Brush Run Church they'd had all these years. And they had another congregation that had started a bit down the road, the other direction. Uh, it was called the Wellsburg Church, and it fell in the Mahoning Baptist Association. It was right on the line. Campbell was at the meeting of the Brush of the Redstone Baptist Association when they were going to withdraw from him. Got right down to taking the vote. And Tom Alexander Campbell stood up and said, I'm sorry to put you folks to all this trouble, but you need to understand I'm no longer a member of the Redstone Baptist Association. I'm a member of the Mahoning Association, which is where the Wellsburg Church was. And the meeting broke up because there wasn't anything to do. He had withdrawn from them. Well, I mention all that, Jacob, because from that point, when he quit publishing The Christian Baptist, and he started a new publication called The Millennial Harbinger, and he ran The Millennial Harbinger for 36 years, and during that time is when he really started having to deal with specifics, and the Mahoning Baptist Association he was a part of dissolved itself, and all across the country, and at least that part of the country, uh, the Baptist associations were shutting the doors and closing because of Campbell's influence. Uh, it's just kind of interesting, I think, that it goes through there. Now, Campbell does a lot of preaching, a lot of writing and everything through that time. But quite honestly, church isn't growing a whole lot because he realized very quickly that it was a whole lot easier chunk rocks and tear something down iconoclastically than it was to start at the foundation and build something up mm -hmm. and that's what he was going through so the restoration movement faced some unhappy dilemmas it longed for oneness with fellow believers in christ but it has not been willing to turn aside from the search for new testament christianity in order to achieve that oneness a lot of the denominational world has. That's the difference. Well, there's one more gentleman we'll talk about today, and that's Walter Scott. Uh, who was Walter Scott, and what was his contribution to restoration principles? Walter Scott was a very interesting man. He was a very intellectual man as well. In fact, one of the things that he's noted for, he becomes the president of the first Christian college that we have among the Restoration period, he he becomes its first president. But prior to that, he was just a great, great gospel preacher. He was very articulate, but more than that, he understood the practical side of preaching, Jacob. He was our kind of preacher. He could deliver a message, and it was clear, it was plain, and uh, I think he was uh, kind of a master of inductive preaching, really. But the Campbells had uh, formed the Brush Run Church. They had the Wellsburg Congregation. Uh, but Campbell, in his writings, he started a series of articles called The Restoration of the Ancient Order of Things. Much of the foundation was laid by the Campbells, but 
16 years into the movement, the Campbells only had two small churches they could point to, Brush Run and Wellsburg. But Walter Scott, Walter Scott shows up. And in 1827, he began to preach. Walter Scott, we've talked about this through some of the Cane Ridge revivals and and Barton W. Stone and some of the others. He didn't resort, Scott didn't resort to emotional preaching. He didn't resort to the exercises, as they called them. He was a very logical, uh, systematic, clear thinker, and that was his approach to his, his sermons. Now, one of the real neat things about Scott, the way he got his crowds in the beginning is he would go throughout the countryside, and he would he'd get arrested for this today but he would go to the elementary schools the little schoolhouses around and when the kids were in recess he would call them over and he'd sit down on a tree stump and he'd call them over and he'd say kids listen to me and he'd hold his fingers up and he'd say faith repentance baptism forgiveness of sins gift of the holy spirit and he'd make them repeat it back. Faith, repentance, baptism, forgiveness, sins, gift of the Holy Spirit. And he'd make them repeat it until they had all memorized that. And then he'd say, now y'all go home, you kids go home, and tell your parents that there's going to be a man down here at the school tonight and going to be talking about those five things. And the kids would, and the parents came out, and he was filling the church houses. Walter Scott is credited as being the first preacher among us to come up with the five-step approach, mm-hmm. which has lived throughout the ages. Now, his five steps were a little different from maybe what you've heard and I've heard through the years. People have adapted it, adapted it and changed it, but the five steps that he had came right from Acts 2.38. Faith, repentance, baptism, forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit. When they had asked Peter, what do we need to do to be saved? That was his answer. So he began preaching it, and the people would come out and where, again, the Campbells had only had two small churches in 16 years. In one year, Walter Scott baptized over 1,000 people in Ohio. Well, Thomas Campbell heard what was going on down in Ohio, and he told Alexander, said, I'm going to go check on it. I don't know what's happened. What has happened to Walter Scott? Has he gone mad or what? And so he went down, and he listened, and he observed what was happening. And Thomas Campbell wrote back to Alexander Campbell, and here's what he said. He said, though we, Alexander and Thomas, though we have understood the gospel for many years, it is now being put into practice for the first time, and the kingdom is growing by leaps and bounds. The movement grew, the restoration movement, Jacob, grew through preaching of the word. That's where it grew. Now, the groundwork had to be laid, but Campbell did a lot of debating. He wrote lots of articles. He did a lot of wonderful things, but the movement took root through preaching. That same thing happened in the first century. The movement grew through preaching. And uh, that's what happened, in my opinion. That's what happened. 
in the United States in the 1950s and 60s when the Church of Christ was known as the fastest growing religious group in America. It was through preaching. Preaching that could be understood, but preaching that was true to the word. In other words, as the Campbells would say, thus saith the Lord, book, mm-hmm. chapter, and verse. Romans ten seventeen still says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I hear a lot of people lots of times saying, how are we going to turn things around? How's the church going to grow again today? That's what's going to happen. If it's going to happen, it's through preaching. That's the only way it ever has happened historically if we look back all the way to the New Testament. And really all the way to the Old Testament, to the days of Moses, God has always used spokesmen to advance his will and his desires on the earth. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, there's a lot of other events could talk about. This is just very, very uh, hitting the surface on the Campbell movement. And, uh, you know, to do it and do it properly, we'd have to just do a series on the Campbells sometime, which we could do. But uh, it's it's very, very uh, influential, these two men. Pretty were impressive family. Very impressive family. Who came to America seeking a new life and really changed the religious landscape of America in the process. Uh, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about the restoration movement today, what it looks like, and what its desires are. Anything else you want to say as we finish today? No, I think what, there is. There really is, but I think we're out of time, Jacob. So, well, we'll save it, and I'll try to put it in next time. I, I, I'll, I'll throw it out there to think about. One of the things that Campbell hit on uh, that had really not been discussed much, and that was in – our interpretation of Scripture, how do we deal with the silence of Scripture? Mm-hmm. And that becomes a big deal then, and it's really a big deal today. Mm-hmm. And so we, we ought to spend some time next week talking about uh, his view and how he dealt with silence of Scripture. I agree. I think that deserves time in and of itself. Uh, glad that you've joined us today, and thanks to Dad for that tremendous amount of information on the Campbell family and as always if you have any questions please email me at jacob at pressingcrest.org we hope that you have a great week and we will look forward to talking with you next time